Well, welcome. We're into the nervous 90s. Uh, in episode 95 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Remington, the Professor, Peter Van Onselen, as always. Uh, out of lockdown. Uh, Peter, welcome. Yeah, it's good to not be in lockdown, but I tell you what, anyone listening out of Melbourne uh, and assuming that they're still in lockdown, which they're likely to be, it must be more than a little bit depressing, but also more than a little bit concerning because at this stage, there are no guarantees that they're going to be able to get this contained within the framework of the currently planned lockdown, wouldn't you say? Well, they're, they're, they're sort of floating the possibility that if all goes well, they might reduce the full length of the lockdown, the seven days it was intended. Uh, that sounds like one of those things you say to kind of keep people's chins up, I would have thought, because they're up to 120 exposure sites, yeah. uh, you know, tens of thousands of people potentially exposed. And there's all that contact tracing has to be done and testing that has to be done. So, uh, you know, a really depressing moment. But there's been a shift a little bit because the great disastrous Victorian lockdowns of 2020 were perceived as being primarily failures of hotel quarantine um, and the blame fetched at the door of Dan Andrews, the Premier. Whereas this time, the Victorian acting Premier, James Molino, is, is kind of having a, a good hard crack at the Commonwealth, among other things, saying that if, uh, if people have been vaccinated, we wouldn't be where we are now. Uh, how does that work out? Is, is, is that fair to sheet this home to the Commonwealth? Oh, absolutely, in my view. I mean, I, I think it was fair last time to sheet the blame home to the state government, even though we are sort of still in a phase of the pandemic then when the blame game was less clear-cut and being utilised than it is today. I think it was reasonable because their contact tracing was so appalling and their response time was so bad that they were playing catch-up in a way that they probably never should have. And the failures from hotel quarantine, even though they weren't nearly as bad, I would argue, as the Commonwealth was making out or as some commentators were making out, there were still mistakes made, I guess would be the way to put it, uh, in the context of what the state government's responsibilities were as opposed to the overarching responsibilities of the Commonwealth. But this time around, you really have to feel for Victoria because there was still a slow response, which is somewhat problematic, but it was more bad luck than bad management, that slow response, just with somebody who was essentially asymptomatic rolling around the joint. But on top of that, uh, the, the real issue is this, you know, the, 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 the tragic irony that this came from hotel quarantine in South Australia to Victoria. And then, of course, South Australia was, I think, the first state to close its borders off to Victoria in the aftermath of it. Uh, but, of course, that's a hotel quarantine bleed at a time when a lot of state governments, certainly the Labor Party as opposition federally, are calling for purpose-built quarantine facilities, which are not happening and the Commonwealth government are refusing to do. So that's point number one about responsibility being reasonably sheeted home, I think, and blame to the federal government. Point number two is what you've already alluded to, Hugh. It's this idea of the vaccine rollout. It has been slow and it has been patchy. There are some good reasons for that and other bad reasons for that, frankly. Uh, but either way, that is a Commonwealth responsibility. And the simple fact is, is that if there had been a more fulsome coverage of vaccinations in Victoria, it may not have spread like this in the first place because you're less likely to spread it if you are vaccinated. But certainly the risks that people are now facing in Melbourne would have been lower with a more fully vaccinated population because you're less likely to get seriously ill or die from it. And that also in turn means that the economic consequences and the impact on people's lives from even having to have a lockdown may not have even been necessary if those other things had been followed. So 
This is a real political risk for the Commonwealth, I believe, uh, because for once they are a little bit cornered on this, I think, and the state government, as you mentioned, Hugh, seems very prepared this time to say, oi, feds, this is your fault. So let's look at the numbers. I mean, what has been revealed by this? Greg Hunt has been sitting up there uh, in a sort of a snowstorm of questions, and he's gamely trying to stick to his talking points and sort of talking over interviewer after interviewer, etc. While he, you know, trying to show that the glass is indeed half full. But ultimately, what emerges is that less than one in six of the disability care sector, people in disability care have been vaccinated, it's an extremely low number. Uh, 50% of those over 70 have been vaccinated, which means 50% have not. And that there are still- And only the first jab, only the first jab, Hugh, that's an important point, I think. Yeah, and 74 aged care homes across the country, which is a small proportion of the of the aged care homes, uh, have, have still not been vaccinated, even after the disasters of what, happens when the virus gets into aged care homes and there is at that point almost nothing stopping wholesale death. So this vaccine rollout has failed on the measures that the government set for it. And you would think now failed on the measures that most ordinary citizens uh, would think was a fair thing. Would that not be the case? Yeah, I think so. The 95% figure that Greg Hunt likes to talk about for the number of people who have been vaccinated in aged care homes sounds impressive. You know, you get 95% in a, a class test, you feel like you've done pretty damn well. But, and it's an important but, first up, that's only people that have been jabbed once, not twice. So it's not as though you've got 95%. You know, you've, you've, you've got 95% in your HSC trial. Now let's see how you go in the main one, which 12 weeks later under the AstraZeneca is the second jab. That's an important difference because you get a little bit of assistance from your first jab, but you get a lot from your second and that's when it's complete and you're fully vaccinated. Okay. Now the other thing is 95%, if that number had been the number of people across Victoria who had been vaccinated, even if it was the number of people uh, over 50 across Victoria who had been vaccinated, I would say, well, that's that's good. And then if you're in the 5%, that's unlucky. And if that 5% have led to an outbreak, then that's unlucky for the government. But that's only aged care homes where you would like to think everyone would have been vaccinated by now, uh, at least with one jab rather than 95%. And the figure of it being 50% of people uh, over 70 who have been vaccinated, well, that's just not good enough. You know, you're not happy if you get 50% in a class test and people over 70 are at serious risk of COVID and should have had a better jab rate than that by now. Now there is some personal responsibility on this as well, because there are enough, uh, there are enough vaccines around of AstraZeneca for people to get the jab, but there is clearly hesitancy there amongst people, even amongst people over 70 who are so much better off to get the bloody vaccine uh, and, you know, with this infinitesimally small risk of blood clotting versus the very high risk of death or serious illness from COVID, particularly for people over 70. I mean, that's the case for people over 50, much less for people over 70. So there has to be some personal responsibility on this, I think. And yes, the government can have better information campaigns. It sort of botched some of the rhetorical handling of the risks around blood clotting. But ultimately, individuals still need to do what you did, Hugh. And if you're eligible and you're over 50, Get the damn AstraZeneca jab. Don't be silly. One of the interesting things was uh, uh, Greg Hunt's saying that uh, there is enough of the mRNA vaccines or will be by the end of the year 
for everyone in Australia to be vaccinated with those. These are the Pfizer, Moderna type models, which mm. uh, it, it seems to be emerging people out in the marketplace. Australians seem to have drawn the conclusion that these are, are the sort of the better ones than the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine, even though AstraZeneca has, you know, the blood clotting issues aside, has got an extremely good record at stopping death or, or very sick, critical illness. Uh, in if you're later exposed to the to the virus, but in saying that, that there'll be enough of that other stuff coming on later in the year. Some people remarked on it at the time as seeming to kind of, you know, encourage people to take their time and and shop and get the get the vaccine that they wanted. Is that a fair criticism that there just doesn't seem to have been that urgency of message or it comes and goes from the government with that that sort of suggestion also that, hey, don't, mm. don't worry because there's another one coming? Well, I think that is an issue because they they are feeding some of the hesitancy by making that point. Like it might be a factual point. Sure, there are these other ones coming later in the year, Pfizer and Moderna. So if you don't want AstraZeneca, you can wait for that. But the minute you give people that choice, you feed into the hesitancy. So that that is a problem and a mistake. Individuals probably need to rise above it. But it's you know what it is, though? It's the same mistake, I believe, that they made early on in the pandemic in 2020 when they didn't understand that shaking hands or going to the footy might at that time with low and virtually no community transmission made it safe to do so. But it takes time for the message to seep in that in a couple of weeks' time that might not be the case. So political leaders need to be out in front of that and advocating not doing things that they want people to not do weeks from now because it takes time to seep into people's consciousness. This is similar and analogous to that for me because they need to realise that their words matter when they start saying things about you can wait or if you've got hesitancy, this will be available later in the year. That makes it much more likely that more people will do that uh, and that, that therefore there are risks in that. Whereas if they just stayed silent on that, some people would work out for themselves that they want to choose to wait, but you're not feeding that delay uh, with your own rhetoric, making it worse. I've got a question for you though, Hugh. What, what's your view on people over 50 who are eligible for AstraZeneca? Put aside for a moment the, you know, the messaging of the government and how that impacts this. I'm talking individual choice. How do you feel about individuals over that age who are wanting to wait for Pfizer or Moderna when they are being told they should get AstraZeneca by the health experts. Do you feel like that's your individual right, so therefore do what you want? Or do you feel like you have a collective responsibility so you should get the jab that you're entitled to now to protect the rest of us because there is a collective consequence, if you like, to people making the choice not to? Interesting question. So the, the, what are the principles? Break it down to the basic principles. I can't drive my car any way I want to down the road because I accept that there are rules uh, mm. relating to the safety of others. So one argument would be that uh, there, there's an argument for mandating a vaccine for people who are in vulnerable groups, whether that's over 50, over 60, um, you know, there is an argument for it. It does. I'm not can I, can I ask you, attracted you, to it. Can I ask you, sorry, just to, uh, as a point of clarification, do you, when you say mandating, do you mean if you're over 50, you either get no vaccine because you have a right to not take a vaccine or you take the AstraZeneca, but you don't get the option of the Pfizer or the Moderna? Is that, is that what you mean? Or So, 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 so what I'm saying is that, 
it would be open to a government to apply the principle in the same way that they apply road rules um, because of the, you know, because freedom of, of behavior has its limits, you know, at certain times. So, so there would be a philosophical argument that would be available to be made by the government to mandate the vaccine. You don't get a choice. Here's the vaccine. It's the AstraZeneca. This is one. You mean you even you have to you have you have to you have to mandate it. So I'm I'm saying hang on I'm saying that is a philosophical argument. (laughs) And just before you ask the next question, I said I'm not attracted to that as a notion. I'm not personally attracted to Mm, it. Right. Um, I think that you have to allow choice, and um, but at the same time, I do think that we have a responsibility to ourselves, to our families, to our communities to take what is plainly uh, the best available option to harden up our resilience to this uh, virus. And so I think that there is, uh, I I think that my my strong message to people, plainly the example that I've said as as countless others is simply go and get uh, what's available to you at the moment is the AstraZeneca. Uh, You know, if you look at the evidence on the AstraZeneca on preventing death or or critical illness being put into an ICU bed if you are subsequently exposed to COVID is extremely strong. This is a very, very effective vaccine um, at at dealing with that. There may be variants coming of the of the uh, of the disease, which it is less effective at, and, and that's that's a, a factor. But the the strongest thing you can do at the moment to essentially harden up national resistance and your own health is to go and get vaccinated. And, See, and the, yep, go on. Sorry, sorry. I was just going to say there's, there's another part to this, this idea of sort of a version of mandating along the lines that you're talking about. Uh, you could also just have this hard principle of if you're over 50 or over 60, whatever you want to make it, you have to get the AstraZeneca. You don't get the Moderna or the Pfizer. You know, there's no guarantee at least that you'll get it. That that is not dissimilar, using your road example, to pea platers at the other end of the age spectrum not being allowed to drive cars of a certain, you know, um, uh, what do you call it? I'm not a car head, but you know, like you know, with with more power. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a limit to the amount of power that a pea plater is allowed to drive a car with. Uh, you could apply that same principle, couldn't you, to say to people over fifty, look. You, you know, we're not going to force you to get it, and you can have all sorts of carrots and sticks that try to help make them, but you're not making it strictly mandatory. But you are saying to them, whether you like it or not, so that we can roll out Pfizer to everybody else with all the limits of what we do and don't have, you get AstraZeneca or you get nothing. And that might actually be a way that you can help get over some of the vaccine hesitancy. Well, I think that's right. And I think for those friends of mine who are under 50, and they do exist, including my wife, uh, they... Um, Part of the issue there is you don't want to be putting them down the queue to get the vaccination, the Pfizer vaccination that medical advice says is right for their age group because it doesn't have the clotting issues. You don't want to push them out of that possibility of getting vaccinated because you've got boomers, if you like, who are who are being precious about which one they're going to get. So, you know, I, I do think there is there is some sort of argument, but it does amuse me that you're such a student of power on every single level Peter Van Olsen, except when it comes to cars. Um, We'll take a quick break. Uh, Back in just a second. Welcome back. This is episode 95 of The Professor and the Hack. And let's just leave uh, 
uh, poor friends in Victoria in lockdown just for a minute to reflect the sunny uplands of being on the uh, Australian Financial Review rich list because it has come out again. The happy news that Gina Reinhart remains our richest citizen with a wealth, the first one to get over $30 billion on the calculations that are made there. But look down the list to number seven. And what do you know? It's Clive Palmer. The man is a cork. <laughs> He's popped up again. He's worth $13 billion. And this would be, you know, an interesting curiosity for people who follow these things, except that he's back in with his plans to bankroll candidates at the next election. Labor, of course, has him up as a figure of the deepest loathing because they believe that uh, his uh, preference, the way in which he organized his candidates and their preference uh, flows cost them the last election. We might get onto whether there's any merit to that argument. But among the candidates he's uh, keen to back, in fact, he says he will back, is Craig Kelly, uh, not good enough for the coalition uh, in his seat of Hughes in, in, in southwestern Sydney, but um, good enough to be bankrolled by the great $13 billion Clive Palmer, number seven on the list, because Clive Palmer says he's a man of courage and great integrity, Craig Kelly. How much of a factor is Clive Palmer's money going to be in the next election whenever it's held, Peter? Well, potentially huge, Hugh, and that's even if he does badly, you know, with his own party, if it sort of runs candidates as such, as opposed to him just throwing money, you know, bagging one side or the other. Because at the last election, his party did badly, but they threw so much money demonising, at, at an ad campaign demonising, Bill Shorten, that it's hard to believe it didn't have an effect, certainly at the very least in Queensland, uh, which really is what cost uh, Bill Shorten the election, Queensland, and to a lesser extent, WA, I suppose, uh, again, where there was Clive Palmer money floating around. So it's it's potentially very important because what it, what it means is they're not targeted ads the way that the amount of money that he spends would be spent by the coalition if it was to get its hands on that money, but they are what you would call indiscriminate political fire which is going to take out uh, Labor people on the way through because it leans towards criticising Labor more than the coalition, even though sometimes there is some friendly fire at the coalition as well. But uh, it's it's you know it's just the sheer quantum of money. So you know, he spends tens of millions on all of these advertising. Now you know one fraction of that in a more targeted campaign sense being utilised by the coalition would be more valuable to them, but it's still harmful to Labor if he's out there doing what he's doing, because it just sows the seeds of doubt about Anthony Albanese, if that's what he does, or about risking flipping to Labor. The only question mark I have is if we can be sure that a Palmer campaign goes that way again, because we know that he's a bit erratic uh, and he's a maverick. And so there's every chance that he's not as sort of vehemently anti-Labor this time as he was last time. Uh, you know, maybe because of the new fiscal position of the coalition, maybe because he prefers Albo over um, over Bill Shorten, maybe because he's tired of Scott Morrison, maybe because he's reading the room on things like hotel quarantining and vaccinations. You know, he might have been a former National Party man himself, but he's no longer a coalition man as such. So that would be the only red herring in that, that I would say. But the amount of money being thrown at the next election, if that's what happens by Clive Palmer, will have an effect. It's just a matter of where he directs it. And there's no nothing in the rules. He's completely within the rules to do it. Yeah. His advertising campaign, his backing of, of candidates, he can do as he likes. Absolutely. 
oh, he, he can he can do whatever he wants. You know, we don't have campaign finance limits. Uh, it's it's unusual. It's unprecedented, frankly, in Australian politics to have uh, somebody worth so much money prepared to put so much money into campaigns. We've seen billionaires before put money here, there, and everywhere, but nothing of this order that he did at the last election and presumably might choose to do at the next election. It is unprecedented. Yep. And that amount of money uh, can certainly have an effect. Now, the only you know, the only limits on that are, are the limits that apply to anyone when it comes to truth in advertising. But having said that, often, and this has happened with others, I'm not implying Palmer's going to do this, but you know, often that is a, a post-campaign judgment uh, where misleading ad- advertising of a political nature can go on for a long time before it gets pulled into line. Now, I'm not saying he will do that, but... That has been the case in the past for Liberal and Labor. Um, so that could also be the case uh, in any other advertising campaign. It's interesting, isn't it? Because unlike when he made his own tilt uh, into Parliament, successfully into Parliament, and, and carried with him uh, other members of Parliament, including, uh, from memory, Jackie Lambie was one of them, Glenn Lazarus up in uh, in Queensland. There were others who, who, who came in and then got dumped like hot rocks and it all blew up in his face, et cetera. But at that stage, he was trying to get into Parliament. An argument being made now is that he's not really concerned whether his candidates actually get into Parliament. He's in this kind of bizarre situation of running a political party that is well-funded, but relatively indifferent to the quality of the candidates or whether they get into Parliament at all, rather that his aim is to mess with the system, uh, perhaps to his own advantage or perhaps just because he likes to do it. Yeah, I think I think more of the latter, actually. I, I don't think Clive Palmer needs uh, candidates in his pocket as such in politics. I don't think that he needs his own candidates from his own party in Parliament. Uh, I don't think he wants to get there himself. I don't think he enjoyed the experience when he was there. Uh, I just think he finds politics interesting and he likes being a disruptor and he likes having influence for influence's sake. And he's, he's really morphed into a, a unique specimen here because it used to be that one of the ways that minor parties could the most predominant way that minor parties could gain influence if it wasn't to get into parliament and therefore control a balance of power it was to run for parliament and control preference flows in a compulsory preferential voting system particularly in the lower house you know the quid pro quo they'd run for the senate but they could then be having lower house candidates who would have preference allocations on the day which could favour one side of the major party divide or the other. Now, that the Palmer Party has some influence in that respect, but he's not even making that the focus. His focus is just simply that he has candidates and then he puts a tonne of advertising around that sort of almost, um, you know, sort of over-the-top uh, straw man of party candidates running, which is an advertising campaign that hurts major party candidates or major party political leaders, and that's where the real influence comes. Enormous amount of mischief available if you've got $13 billion in the back pocket. That's right. Um, Joe Biden has asked his intelligence community to double down in their efforts to investigate the source of COVID-19. This is amid the uh, growing reports and speculation that perhaps COVID-19, the conspiracy theorists were right, that perhaps it did come out of that Wuhan uh, Virology Institute rather than springing up from nature. Uh, it, at first, that was seen as a lunar conspiracy. It's getting increasing currency, it seems, sufficient for the US president, the Democrat, to say, look, let's find out and sort this all out. Might this explain a little bit more of the level of sensitivity that China showed 
when Scott Morrison got out a little bit ahead of other people and said that uh, what, well, on the face of it is an entirely reasonable request and that there'd be an in independent global investigation into the sources uh, of the pandemic, an entirely reasonable thing for Scott Morrison to say. I don't fault him for saying it. Um, but the, the sensitivity of the reaction displayed by China was quite extraordinary. Um, what do you think is going on there? Well, clearly there's there's there, there seems to be some fire where there is smoke now, doesn't there? And this was uh, this was a concept or an idea or a, a thought process that was more widely dismissed back then than it is now. It's been taken quite seriously now. And Scott Morrison, for his reaction to China, was also um, you know quite heavily criticised at the time in a way that now seems like he was ahead of the curve on that at least, even if he's been behind it on other things. Um, so the fact that Biden is taking that as seriously as he is. Uh, it, look, it, it's interesting on the issue, but I think it's also going to be interesting uh, in terms of the tensions that it creates going forward in what was already an increasingly uh, tense relationship between the US and China, which also then brings Australia in, doesn't it? So, uh, I mean, I, I think that there's a lot more to unpack there, whether now's the time for us to be able to do that or not, or whether we ever will be able to with uh, the closed off, the increasingly closed off nature of China is hard to know. It is interesting because part of the reason why it was dismissed as an idea is that, is that it was because being promoted so strongly by Donald Trump in the election year. It was almost as if, because Donald Trump kept on saying, ah, oh, they Chinese, they created this virus and sent it against, against us to destroy our, our economy. And people went, well, that's so crazily Trump that you can dismiss it out of hand. And now it seems to have some potential currency, at least being taken seriously by some people. And others have noted that uh, Biden hasn't asked his health, uh, his top health people to go and investigate this. He's asked the intelligence community to go and, and investigate the source. Now, what to be an intelligence community for it to have any effect in that, they're going to be looking at signals intelligence, essentially mm. all the, the digital stuff walking around the ether to try to filter their way through that and see if there are clues in there in terms of communications, et cetera, that they might be able to get hold of that, that lead to a smoking gun or alternatively human intelligence, which means that presumably they, they've got spies on the ground or, or, Eight or people willing to be informants for them uh, who might be close enough to give a definitive answer one way or the other within that uh, Wuhan uh, health, you know, virology and all the, the health response teams. And that itself gives some insight into, um, you know, when you're letting loose your spies, uh, it, it, you know, it shows you what is the nature of the relationship between uh, the US and China on a certain level. So, Look, we'll watch that, of course. It'll be enormous if there's anything definitive, and I suspect that there probably won't be. Um, enjoy your weekend uh, moving freely around Sydney, is all I can say, PVO. And <laughs> well, I, I, I was due to head down to, uh, to Melbourne for ABC Insiders uh, on the panel this weekend. I'm still doing it, uh, but I'm doing it out of Sydney. And, and Karen Middleton, who is also on the panel, she was to be heading to Melbourne from Canberra. She'll be uh, in the wall via video as well. It'll be David Spears and Patricia Cavallis who are actually in the studio as Melburnians themselves. Uh, but we, we we saw this coming as the week was transpiring in, in constant back and forth with the powers that be at the ABC before realising, you know what, um, this is unlikely before it became impossible uh, as of yesterday. Yes, absolutely. And uh, presumably in the Melbourne studio, there'll be all those distances that'll take place between yep. them and not too many handshakes. Yep, I imagine that is exactly right.
Mm, okay, well, good luck, all people in Melbourne, and a good plug for insiders, may I just say, and while we're on the subject of plugs, uh, dear podcast listener, may I lead you to a new podcast coming out next week. It's called Making Money Easy. Uh, Gillian Bowen, a financial uh, reporter for uh, for the Network 10, is putting that together, Making Money Easy podcast coming out next week. There's my plug. <laughs> um, have a great weekend. You, we'll see you all next you week. You too, Hugh. Take care. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. <laughs>